0: Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs at Dirk Towers here in Bolton, UK. I'm surrounded by my stuff. If I spin my chair to the left, there's a ridiculous homemade shrine to the actress Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Ah, for this podcast, she is Princess Di. Not that one. From the film At the Earth's Core, alongside Doug McClure. It was a follow-up to the very successful The Land That Time Forgot, also starring McClure, based on the screenplay written by Michael Moorcock. Monroe, for me, is very much an eternal champion, appearing in many guises, in many genres, across time and the universe. If I kick my legs out too far, I'll hit the gas meter, I've been told that it needs to be replaced which means that all of this stuff will need to be unpacked so they can come in and do the work. I'm trying to put them off for as long as possible because it'll never fit back in once it's expanded into the vacuum of the outside world. Any help with trying to calculate fifth dimensional space will be very grateful. Until then I'll put up with the old gas meter with whatever risks that entails. To the right is my great library of tabletop RPGs and my grognard files. I'll reach across and grab this episode's file. Whoa whoa oh, oh, oh. this is heavy. Hang on. This is the right this is not, not the right one. This, this is the eight uh, hundred eighty eighth attempt to list all of Michael Moorcock's creative output. I'll put that back on the shelf and, and come back to it in the microgrog pod, the second part of this episode. This is the one I want. Stormbringer. Fantasy role-playing in the world of Elric. Uh, this file has all the usual so, uh, sections divided into two parts. In this one, there'll be a potted history, which has been compiled with the help from Ken Santandra he's kindly engaged in an interview on Twitter with us. A uh, Twinterview as no one's calling them. And Steve Perrin has also helped via Google+, Plus, and points of clarification have been provided by uh, Rick Mints by email. Also uh, in this bit will be Open Box, Judge Blythe rules, and The White Dwarf, with contributions from At Daily Dwarf. In the end section, I want to take a few moments to thank our founding patrons, as we've set up a Patreon account. Don't worry, I'm not going to bang on about it. The Patreon is there to help support the podcast, allowing you to put a few coins in the beret if you like what we're doing. We'd also like to produce a Grognard Files fanzine. How the fanzine looks and feels will depend on the level of support we achieve. Just imagine reading this bobbins on the Kaze instead of just listening to it. In the next part of this episode, the micro-grog pod, uh, which will follow in a few weeks, there'll be some more Stormbringer goodness. We'll have the Games Master screen, which looks at Stormbringer supplements, Ed's Bargain Shed, um, where we'll give you advice on how to get hold of Stormbringer stuff um, on eBay and the like. Uh, the Listener Post Bag, and some extra more cockania. More, 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 more cock. Blythe is co presenting this one again, because back in the day, he was our games master for Stormbringer. In the very early days of the Armchair Adventurers Club we had a strict rule. Our prime directive. Thou shalt not gamesmaster a game that another member is games mastering. So, this is a game that I've not run until recently which I, I ran a one-shot from the Perils of the Young Kingdom scenario booklet. Adventurers had to confront a Pantangian sorcerer who was corrupting the land with his vile hybrids created by obscene experiments. We refer to it now and again during this episode. I just warn you that this episode is another big one. I offered to split it up a bit over three episodes rather than two, but listeners said they preferred for it to fit on a C90 tape cassette rather than a C-60. So, put the kettle on, grab yourself a brew, a packet of hobnob biscuits, sit back and have your soul drained away by my hypnotic nasal drone. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Section 1. A potted history. It is the colour of a bleached skull, his flesh and the long hair which flows below his shoulders is milk-white. From the tapering, beautiful head stare two slanting eyes, crimson and moody, and from the loose sleeves of his yellow gown emerge two slender hands, also the colour of bone. Resting each arm of a seat, which has been carved from a single massive ruby. Thus begins Elric of published in 1972, the first full novel featuring Elric, the doomed anti-hero at the centre of a series of stories written by Michael Moorcock that first appeared in a novella titled The Dreaming City in 1961. Set in the mythical period of Earth's prehistory, Melnoborne was once a powerful empire, with a reach that extended across the known world that they patronisingly refer to as the Young Kingdoms. Elric is an albino, physically weak, but with an intense brooding integrity that sets him apart from the others of his race. His body is sustained by plants, balms, ointments and drugs, and thanks to their ancient bloodline, he has access to demons, beast lords who master the creatures of earth and elementals. During the episodic collection of stories, as he travels during his exile from the court of Melnoborne, he often has to call upon these supernatural powers to defeat his enemies and aid his companions. His most significant companion during his travels is his sword, Stormbringer, a sentient object that's bound with a demon. The sword gives Elric strength as it feeds upon the souls of those it kills, giving power to the demon lord Ariok. It is an erratic, impulsive thing upon which Elric has little control, forcing him to kill with impunity his enemies and those he loves. Later, Elric Became a facet of the Eternal Champion, a concept that links together Moorcock's other heroic figures such as Hawkmoon, Quorum, Ecros, and Jerry Cornelius, among others. They are heroes in a conflict of the cosmic balance between the forces of chaos and law. In nineteen seventy four, Ken St. Andre went to graduate school at the University of Arizona. His roommate was a diplomacy master who developed the classic strategy game of pre war Europe into a fantasy variant. A year later, when Ken got back home, he grew interested in developing diplomacy in swords and sorcery settings of his own. One of the first he created was for the Young Kingdoms. When Chaosium got the license to produce a game based on the Elric stories, Ken contacted Greg Stafford with suggestions and recommendations on how the game should be done. He got the gig. Although Elric had appeared in short stories and journals for a number of years, it took some time for them to be collected together in a book format. They were published under different titles too, which is why cataloguing them is so difficult. Ken based his initial research on two volumes – Stormbringer, and the Stealer of Souls. When Moorcock created the Young Kingdoms, it was for the benefit of the narrative, with little regard for consistency. A game world, on the other hand, needs an internal consistency. So this was Ken's first task, filling in the gaps and extrapolating the details of cultures, history, economics, and ecology to make the world playable. When it came to magic, for instance, Moorcock only gives the vaguest description of how it actually worked. It seemed to Ken that everything he did involved some kind of summoning of external supernatural forces, so he designed a system based on summoning and subduing demons and elementals. It proved to be the trickiest part of the game design He has described the process of creating a game world as transcribing the essence of someone else's imagination into numerical and descriptive form of rules. He then says that the task of gamers is to take these numbers and flesh them out in their imagination, to recreate the storytelling experience in their own minds while playing. Steve Perrin, was a KSCM staffer by this point, and was assigned to oversee and edit Ken Santander's work. Principally, his role was to ensure that the mechanics didn't stray too far from basic role-playing, which were being developed as KSCM's in-house system. Some of Ken's innovations were sacrificed on the altar of BRP. For example, he wanted to use the base 8 in the game to reflect the strong implications of chaos. So the copper coin, for example, was the low currency. The silver coin was worth eight times as much as copper, and gold was worth 64 times as much as silver. Not very far away from their value on earth. The Melnobornian wheel would have been 500 times as much as gold. Too complicated, said the publishers, so they went with multiples of ten. Steve Perrin added additional material about religions and developed the concept of virtues for lawful characters to summon and bind to complement the idea of chaotic demons. Due to these developments, Ken was happy to elevate his status to a co-author. The game was released in 1981 in a deep box, followed by a second edition shallow box in 85. And the Games Workshop Hardback 3rd Edition in 87. There was very little supporting material for the game back in the day. Hawkmoon RPG came out in 1986 with the promise of more Eternal Champion RPGs compatible with Stormbringer, such as Corum. Those additional games didn't appear, but Stormbringer's status changed in 1990 when the 4th Edition included a substantial rewrite and the inclusion of more specific spells. At this time, RuneQuest was in the hands of Avalon Hill, so Stormbringer became the front and centre fantasy RPG product in the Chaosium Stable. A whole host of additional supplements were produced. Three years later, Stormbringer was replaced by Elric! Exclamation mark, following another... Substantial Revision, but this time by Lynn Willis and others. This was later republished in 2001 as the 5th edition of Stormbringer. In that same year, KCM issued a D20 game using the IP, Dragon Lords of Melnobornay. Ken Santandra's name had been removed from the credits, and much of the energy and distinctive flavour of the Young Kingdoms had been lost in these later versions. The name staggered on in a Mongoose supplement for their version of BruneQuest. Chaosium lost the rights, and now the only Moorcock RPG in existence is Mornblade, a French-language RPG set in the period of Elric's youth, prey to Moorcock's cycle of stories using a choose-your-dice system. What of Moorcock and his thoughts of the games he inspired? He has provided supportive comments for the box of Stormbringer, but he was never in direct correspondence with the game makers before or during the development of the game. Most of his contact with KCM was through an intermediary. His relationship with them was long and renewed and extended a couple of times but they did fall out with each other eventually. The reasons for this falling out vary depending upon who you ask. While he is scathing about Warhammer and the commercial theft of his ideas, his general attitude towards gaming is one of bemusement. Fascinated by the length of preparation invested by the gamesmaster, and, in the 1980s, he said that the Games and games playing were a reaction against political disenfranchisement. The new Chaosium, under the management of Moon Design, is reaching out to him, ensuring that all outstanding commercial arrangements are settled. If nothing else, by the end of these two podcasts, I hope to encourage you to read some more Moorcock. If the books have been on your shelves for years unread, then reach them down dust them off, and become absorbed once again. If this is your first introduction to his world and his writing, or he's somebody that you've heard of and know little of, then stick around, because by the end of these two podcasts, I want you to be begging for more. As for the revival of Stormbringer RPG, let's come together, harvest some souls for Ariok and get it kick-started again. Section 2, Open Box Hello Blithy Hello Dirk Well, in this section it's called Open Box and we look to our first experiences of playing with Stormbringer and to help this experience with the help of Patreon I've actually reconstructed your bedroom for when you were 13. Do, do you like it? <laughs> it's very realistic. Yeah, yeah so over in the, yeah, you're sat there on a swivel chair by your MFI desk. Yeah. A very narrow desk there. Mm. You've got the
1: steel grey curtains with the white diagonal stripe. Yeah, very know? 80s. Very 80s. It's a very small room. It's very small. It was small. the box room, wasn't it, that they put me and my parents? My sister had the bigger room. I think now it would probably break some human rights rules, but it's so small. <laughs> Made Harry Potter's room under the stairs look yeah. spacious.
0: So uh, you've got uh, on the turntable there. You've got High Infidelity by Areo by a classic. Like well, classic. in my opinion. <laughs> uh, and there's a dog-eared copy of the Freeman's Catalog. What's that doing there by the side of Oh, know? ignore that. Ignore that. All right, okay, I'll pass over. that. Right. Um, and on the uh, on the wall on the wall there's a poster of Rodney Matthews. A poster of Elric and. Not a poster
1: of Rodney Matthews. No, it it sounds like a footballer. He may (laughs) have been a footballer. Yeah? Yeah. It's a poster of Elric and Moon fighting something by Rodney Matthews, drawn by, by Rodney yeah, Matthews. Yeah, yeah fighting White. something. That's right. Some kind of giant beetles, I think they were, or something like that. Yeah, and yes. it, it kind
0: of uh, really captures the elongated features of uh, mm. Manuboni and susney in his in his drawings. That's really good. And uh, uh, j- just covering the uh, mark on the wall where um, you threw the travel the travel real book, book. Yeah, you, there is the fold-out map of the young kingdoms that came with the with the game. Mm. So this was your game in the prime directive. Yeah, it was. Uh so you were the game's master. So just um just remind me how they started because this is a bit different, isn't it, from um, Call of Cthulhu because what was different with Call of Cthulhu? We never heard of Lovecraft prior to playing Call of Cthulhu. No, but Moorcock's different Moorcock's <laughs> different because we were actually reading Moorcock before we got into role playing. Yes. Um and I remember getting the uh, book from um, Bolton Library and devouring it, devouring the novel. I just captivated so that that first scene where mm. Elric sat on his ruby foot throne, um, and his court surrounding him and Yerkun. He's about to challenge him to usurp his throne and Simeril's, like, it's just a very evocative uh, scene, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think I think it, was a sort of revelation. The Elric books were a revelation because I think prior to that, our excursions into fantasy fiction had been, you know, Lord of the Rings is an obvious starting point, isn't it? Lord of the Rings and some of the Stephen Donaldson stuff and, and that kind of thing. And, and you know, whilst the, you know. Without being too controversial they're fine, but they weren't really our cup of tea. We found them kind of hard work and a bit of a slog, and dare I say it, a bit dull in places, yeah, you know, I don't know as many people who disagree, but I think we we like Moorcock because it, it was a way into that kind of pulpier fantasy, a bit like the Robert E. with the corn and stuff yeah. it was a bit it it was a bit more action packed, like you say, Moorcock has a great habit or a great skill rather of painting a very very vivid fantasy picture in your mind with a few well-chosen sentences yeah. whereas yeah. people like Tolkien yeah. go on and on and on forever it's a real economy of language isn't mm. it and that and mm. very vivid um, and yeah. very vivid and, and people and you can be a little bit dismissive of people like Morcock because they are in that kind of pulp tradition aren't they you know the famous stories of Morcock writing three novels over a weekend where he had the flu you know accompanied only by a bottle of whiskey kind of People can be sniffy and think, "Well, well, he, you know, he's just a kind of bit of a hack," but but that's not really the case, I don't think. I think he's he's a very very skillful writer that manages to write in a economically but vividly, yeah. which is a, a, quite a trick, actually. Yeah. I think. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's self,
0: uh, self. Uh, Mission. It's a, He is a hack writer, isn't he? He was writing um, yeah. to keep yeah. to keep himself afloat yeah. and to keep yeah. uh, New Worlds magazine, which was we editing and publishing at the time, uh, afloat. Um, and he produced these fantasies to kind of uh, live to, to yeah. sustain. Yes. Yeah. That. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But you know that doesn't diminish um, the quality. I mean, just look at the uh, look at the map. If you look at um, you know some of these names are just fantastic for me. You know. Pantang, Manabone, and the fabled city of Tanalon, yeah. um, yeah. Lashma. All these, all these brilliant names. Who wouldn't want to kind of go into that place? and yes. discover it. Just
1: the names themselves are evocative, even if you don't quite know what where that place is or what it's like. Just the name. Yeah, just your imagination yeah. going. And I think
0: very much as we as we get into Stormbringer. Uh, the game, that's very much how it works, isn't it? It, it mm. kind of uses this idea that this is a collaborative space that uh, is yours now to use. So perhaps we'll talk about that bit a bit yeah, later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, there's, a, there's an interesting quote on the back of the box, which I'll, I'll read when we, when we talk about the, the box, that, yeah. that gives a little insight into that, I think. Okay, so let's um, talk about your first encounter with the game. Um, so how did you first come across it? Well, uh, funnily enough, I, I first came across it at Northern Games Day. Um, I think we may have heard of it prior to that, but it was not an easily accessible game. It, it wasn't, and you'll you know about these things, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it was published by Games Workshop, was it? It's published by KCM, but it wasn't. Readily available in the UK? No, it wasn't. It wasn't
0: licensed uh, by Games Workshop until uh, 1987, so yeah. um, it
1: was um, only available in import form. But we'd, so we'd heard of it, but um, obviously I hadn't, hadn't seen it. I don't think we'd seen it for sale at that point. Um, and at Northern Games there, one of the people there was running a Stormbringer game. So when we got into the big hall with all the games, there was Stormbringer. Yeah. And being a, like a Moorcock and Elric fan, I thought. I'll have a go at this. So I, was, I think I was the first one there and I sat down and um, the guy running it, was, he was a bit old. I mean, I was only, old not about 13, 13, yeah, something 13, like 14, that. 14, yeah. 14. Um, he was, you know, must have been, I don't know, the grand old age of 20, maybe even 21. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember sitting down and I remember him saying to me, um, if you, and we, we'll touch on this later, at length, I'm sure, he said, if you want to be the most powerful character, be the Nibonian sorcerer. And I remember looking at the character sheet, and of course I understood bits of it, because it's basic role-playing, and we'd been playing RuneQuest for a few years, so we, I understood the concepts just at first glance. But I remember thinking, oh, I don't want that to do that. I don't want to be the centre of attention or the weight of expectation on me that I'm the most powerful character around the table. So I opted for some, I think he was a sailor, my character, character. Um, and that was sort of interesting because you thought, oh, this sailor. They had like careers, which RuneQuest didn't really have. Yeah. Like a, each character had a career warrior, sailor, thief, that kind of thing. Uh, so I remember playing a sailor. Um, we played it. I can't remember much about it. I remember we landed in a, sh- a ship. We landed on a beach. I think we fought some clackers, you know, the winged, yeah, yeah. The winged ape things yeah. that are in the books. We fought some clackers. Um, and then they broke for lunch and no, nobody, nobody came back apart from me. It was just me <laughs> that came back. Uh, and so I went a bit wrong then and, and he abandoned it, this fella. He had, he had a very attractive girlfriend and for some strange reason he was more interested in her than running the game, which yeah. I couldn't understand at 14. Still can't really, yeah, yeah. much rather. Were you willing to play all
0: the characters? I was willing
1: to play. I would like, say, all right, I will play the Melnavonian sorcerer. I'll play all of them. Please carry on. No, leave your girlfriend alone. No, come back, please. And so how soon after that did you get the game? I think it was a few... It might have been a month or two later. I think it was Northern Games Day in April. I think it was, My birthday's in May. I think we went to London, uh, one of our famous day trips to London, and went to Forbidden Planet, and Stormbringer was there in Forbidden Planet. Bit pricey, but I had a bit of birthday money. And I bought it then. So I think I bought it. A month, it was a month or two after Northern Games Day. It's a very striking cover, isn't it, on that early edition of um, the first Stormbring. edition. Yeah, it's got uh, it's good. It's good cover picture of Elric on the front, Stormbringer. with very deep red background, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's an evocative cover, um, and I bought yeah, I bought it from Forbidden Planet, um, not Games Workshop. It was Forbidden Planet because, as we said earlier, it wasn't that easily. Available. I think they just had one. Might have had one or two copies in there. Yeah. So what did you get in it? What was it? Um, box set. You got the rules, uh, softback rules. Uh, you got the map of the Young Kingdoms, which was quite exciting. Which went on the wall with the bedroom. Um, you got. I think you got some character sheets. I think you got a kind of booklet. I, I have still got the box set, but when I look inside, that there isn't. It mentions an information booklet. But I've not got that anymore, so I'm not quite sure what that was. And some sort of cardboard silhouette figures yeah. to use as old uh, old um. Yeah, the yeah, Chaosium silhouettes. Silhouette, uh, silhouette things, yeah. yeah. Um and you also got you got funny shaped dice.
0: Yeah.
1: It was nice. the first game I'd bought that came because there was a you know, I I ran Traveller for many years. Yeah. With this boring D six. But this was the first game I got with polyhedral dice, that's what they say, isn't it? But yeah. I say funny shaped Same dice, yeah. which is the kind of dice you want. Well, we all know that the the only real reason you got um, Stormbringer was
0: a way of bypassing the Prime Directive. Which of course, was... Yeah,
1: it was. As, as in true lawyer fashion, I found a loophole in the Prime Directive. <laughs> I could play a game quite similar to RuneQuest that wasn't RuneQuest. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's true. Just to go back to the box, there's a great quote on the back of the box from Moorcock, um, which I'll read, if I may. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah I'll read that. that. Uh, on the back of the box, it says... Um, and this is a quote from Moorcock. It says, "Stormbringer reveals more about my own fantasy books and characters than I could have guessed. It does not merely derive from the books; it complements them perfectly." Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting quote because yeah. it does. Stormbringer does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? That, yeah. You know, you felt a, it was quite a liberating game that you felt. Although it's based on these books, I can, I can do what I want. Yeah. You know, well, I think I think what it is is that the
0: at the time. I, I mean, Moorcock wrote some uh, a couple more novels uh, in the eighties and, and early nineties uh, with Elric as a uh, character in them. But they were more or less fixed, weren't they? So the adventures of Elric and the and the world was kind of uh, written. And under, unlike something like Glorantha, um, although they, although they say your Glorantha may vary. At That early age, it didn't really feel. It mm. felt very precious. Yeah. It felt like uh, if you made a, a change to it, it would have uh, consequences. When you bought a, a supp- subsequent mm. uh, supplement, uh, Middle Earth role playing, um, you know, you, you felt like there was going to be a supplement on Ents uh, that would uh, kind of
1: disprove and, everything. And, you'd And, and done I before. think there was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I bought. I mean, many years later. Is that many years later? Three, four years later. I bought Middle Earth Role playing. I think we played a couple of games of it, but Middle Earth Role Playing d- did feel quite stifling because there were all these supplements about all the different bits, you know, the Barrows and brie and all these other places, and and you did feel a little bit. It, it felt quite restrictive that, like you said, you were stepping on some kind of big. Cultural tours in some way that yeah. if you did something that was, it felt like you could do the wrong thing. Yeah. I think that's the way it felt like. If you were running a game in Middle Earth, you could you could play it wrong, you could do it wrong because it wasn't yeah. in keeping with the world. And I think what um, Stormbringer gave you, and it, and you genuinely felt this at the time, although he perhaps didn't wouldn't have articulated it like this at the time. It gave you just enough detail. With the books and the game to make it evocative and feel like you were in this other world. But it also pulled back on detail, so you felt you had a lot of freedom about yeah. various bits and pieces. Well, if you take a clacker, for example, so
0: in the books, a clacker is described as an ape like creature with leathery wings. Right? It's all you get. Yeah yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can use a clacker. In the full knowledge that there isn't going to be a footnote, no, there isn't a, yeah. a footnote about how, how they uh, yeah. the, the birthrights yeah. of a clacker, yeah,
1: um,
0: you know, the origins of the clacker, were they you know, that kind of thing, it's just it, it, it's just it, it's just there. Um, so I think that is very liberating as a, a games master and as a player, yeah, because um, we, there was only a a handful of us playing very often would find that we would be playing it one on one as well, yeah, yeah. Um, where I take a character and you'd be the games master, and we'd we'd, we'd, uh, we'd work at that. Because I think in previous podcasts you said, you know, in you know, travel you just wanted to be Han Solo. In uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, you wanted to be uh, Indiana <laughs> <laughs> Jones. Jones yeah. Yeah. For all I know you want to be Henry and regarding Henry. I don't, I don't. <laughs> <know>. But <laughs> for me as a teenager, me as a me as an adult, what I want to be is one of more cops characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's tangle bones uh mm. Elric's retainer yeah. you know Rakia the red yeah those kind of uh, I, I think there's something it taps into kind of eccentric characters full of uh, mm. different um, impulses and motivations um, that, that i find find interesting uh, about uh, uh, being a role playing i if um, we've recently uh, started playing again haven't we we had a we had a, a one off game we did yeah online mm. how did that how did that bring things back? How did that feel? Because uh, I, I games mastered it and uh, you played it.
1: Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a bit of a role reversal. But um, It's probably the first time you've played it since you played since it Since no? Northern, Northern Game, game. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this time everyone stayed and we finished off the game. We did, no, yeah. we didn't go home after lunch. No, everybody I'm, survived, but that's another matter. <laughs> no, no, it is a bit... I mean, that's one of the, the first things that comes across with the game. It, it is, can be quite deadly. Yeah. It's it's quite a deadly game. Um and it's interesting that it's written by Ken Santandra um, who wrote Tunnels and Trolls. And Tunnels and Trolls had that kind of reputation of, you know, nasty traps and nasty monsters and being kind of a bit a little bit bloodthirsty in terms of Yeah. And and there's a little bit of that in Stormringer, I think. It can be quite yeah nasty. I mean we'll talk about some of the, the rules later on, but it, <laughs> you know he yeah. can be fine one minute and i
0: think there's a line in the rulebook that says um um your character's dead now file your
1: character sheet that's yeah. it there's yeah. a finality to it that's yeah. it it um, does have that and i think when we played it it, it there's a question mark over the idea of a long-running campaign with stormbringer yeah uh, i mean sorcerers are quite powerful um so you could imagine as a sorcerer maybe surviving. But having said that, being a sorcerer is a bit risky. You can go yeah. insane. You can be killed by a demon. Yeah. So even that's not that safe. So yeah. it is quite a dangerous game. But but the other thing that came across uh, when we played it again is it, it's a lot of fun. It is it's hard. Fun. It's hard to be poor faced about it, in my opinion. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Um. And there is that feeling that you're in the Young Kingdoms, and if you're a Moorcock fan, you think, well, you know, yeah, it's it's a good laugh, but it it does make you wonder about our experience, and I always strain a little bit, but it made me wonder about our experience of Cthulhu because we're not huge fans of Lovecraft's literary work, you know, we're not aficionados right. of it, we're not, um, but it makes you wonder how people who love Lovecraft's work feel when they play Cthulhu. They probably have a different experience to when we play Cthulhu. Is it that interesting question, isn't it? That there's a here's a role-playing game based on a particular set of films, particular TV show, a particular set of books, Uh, and you can play that. So you know you can play Star Trek the role-playing game, you can play Star Wars the role-playing game. But it begs a question, doesn't it, about how much better that experience is if you're a fan of that. Uh, On Twitter recently, there's a kickstart of Conan, isn't there? Yeah. Now that would be fun. But if you're a big fan of Conan books, it's yeah. gonna be a lot more fun. Yeah. And that, and I suppose our view of Stormringer is coloured a little by that. Because we're big fans of Moorcock, big fans of Elric. So it was it's fantastic. Even uh, even now to revisiting it, it's fantastic to think here I am in the Young Kingdoms, fighting a Pantangian sorcerer. Yeah. Something about it, you know. Well, let's uh,
0: explore some of the brutal world of the Young Kingdoms. Um in terms of the rules, when we come back for Judge Blythe's rules, I'm going to listen to uh, how Stormbringer appeared in a white dwarf. But until then, goodbye, Blythe. Goodbye, Dirk. Section three: The White Dwarf. Stormbringer, role playing at the end of time. Picking a white dwarf highlight for Stormbringer RPG is easy since there's only one, The Madcap Laughs. An epic scenario that ran over four issues, from 95 to 98. But more on that in a minute. The first edition of Stormbringer was reviewed way back in White Dwarf 29, and, like Traveller before it, see Grogpod Episode 3, it received a rather lukewarm review. Murray Rittle, the reviewer, starts off by praising the presentation and organisation of the game, and complimenting its evocation of the Young Kingdoms. Ken Santandre and Steve Harrington have obviously consulted with Moorcock about it. Recent Twitter conversations with Ken Santandre have revealed that actually Ken had no contact with Michael Moorcock. Either before or during the development of the game. So it's a testament to the great job that Ken and Steve did in bringing the world of Elric to life that the reviewer assumed that Moorcock must have been involved. Instead, as Ken said, I just liked his sword and sorcery books, especially Elric. For a while, Mr. Riddle continues his review in a positive mood, praising the character creation, combat and skill systems and the subtle differences to the existing BRP mechanics. The problems start with the game's handling of sorcery. While he commends the fact that the summoning of elementals and demons is true to the spirit of the books, the reviewer feels that it leaves the game unbalanced, hindering the campaign playability. For him, Stormbringer did not seem to hit the target, and overall, he gives it a rather mean score of 7 out of 10. Personally, I find the review rather confused. There's clearly a lot that Mr Riddle does like about the game. He recognises how it conjures the young kingdoms in all their chaotic, exotic, deadly glory. The variety of characters available in Stormbringer, powerful sorcerers, barbarians, beggars, merchant princes, is one of its strengths. So to complain about character imbalance just seems, well, odd. Basing a campaign around such a disparate group would be a challenge, "'But isn't that one of the attractions of role-playing?' "'Come on, Mr. Riddle, give it an eight, at least!' Anyway, in 1982, Chaosim were on a roll. Stormbringer was soon joined on the shelves by Call of Cthulhu. Along with RuneQuest, they formed the triumvirate of quality, immersive RPG systems. Articles and scenarios in White Dwarf would undoubtedly soon follow.' Well, no. RuneQuest was already well established in the pages of White Dwarf, and material soon began to appear for Call of Cthulhu. But for Stormbringer, there was nothing. Nada, Nish, not a single article or scenario appeared, until the madcap laughs. Yes, we will get to it. Please bear with me. I've often wondered just why there was never any Stormbringer material in White Dwarf. After all, here was a game based on the works of preeminent British science fiction and fantasy writer. Surely this was right up the Dwarf Street. Maybe Call of Cthulhu, being genuinely different from the existing games that were around when it was released, captured roleplay's imaginations more. Maybe people were already using existing fantasy RPGs to adventure in the Young Kingdoms. KSEM didn't help in this regard either. They too seemed to put all their creative weight behind the releases of RuneQuest and uh, Call of Cthulhu supplements and scenarios. For Stormbringer, they came out very infrequently. I trust that Dirk will have all the details. As far as I'm aware, even Chaosum's house magazine, Different Worlds, only featured two scenarios for Stormbringer, both of them from the pen of Kent Centrander himself. Was no Stormbringer material ever submitted to White Dwarf during these years? Or was everything rejected? Many niche games were covered during this period, Champions, Car Wars, Pendragon, Doctor Who, so it still surprises me that Stormbringer never featured. I suppose only Ian Livingstone really knows the answer to these questions, and I'm sure he's an avid listener to the Grognard Files podcast, so maybe he'll write in to tell us. Eventually, a couple of Stormbringer scenarios were reviewed in open box, as was the Hawkmoon RPG, but still no actual material appeared in the magazine. And then, seemingly out of the blue, Games Workshop released a Stormbringer hardback under license from KSEM, featuring the original rules, plus the Stormbringer companion. This followed a similar pattern to Games Workshop hardback release of 3rd edition Call of Cthulhu, package up the rules and supplementary material in an attractive hardback, and include some extra full-colour artwork as an added enticement. For my taste, the cover art by Peter Jones is a little over and not a patch on the Chaosium original box art by Frank Brunner, but each to their own. But still, Rejoice! With Games Workshop backing, a flood of new articles and scenarios would undoubtedly follow. Ah, but the times they were a-changing. What was that? The madcap laughs? Oh, it's coming up, I, I promise. Games Workshop release of Stormbringer Hardback is inextricably linked in my mind with the demise of RPGs in the pages of White Dwarf. At the time of its release, Games Workshop had a great roster of RPGs on their books, either of their own, Warhammer's Fantasy Roleplay, Judge Dredd, or they were published under license, RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, Paranoia, and now Stormbringer. The issues numbered from the mid-70s to the early 90s were of a very high standard. Great, thought-provoking articles In-depth, engaging scenarios, high-quality artwork, even fewer chainmail bikinis on the covers. And yet, as the Stormbringer hardback was released, the RPG content fell off a cliff. Warhammer fantasy roleplaying and Judge Dredd clung on by their fingertips a little longer, but even they disappeared soon after. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, by 1987, the writing was already on the wall for Games Workshop's commitment to RPGs. The very next issue after Stormbringer was reviewed in open box, a certain Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader was released. It was clear very quickly that Games Workshop had a big hit on their hands. Within six months, it came to dominate White Dwarf. It's easy to see why. The idea of fantasy races armed with high-tech sci-fi weaponry is an attractive one. Couple that with Warhammer's, or should it be Moorcock's, backdrop of the endless struggle against the hordes of chaos, and you have a surefire success. And despite Warhammer 40,000, originally being advertised as saying, you won't need hundreds of models, just a dozen will do. People bought miniatures, lots of miniatures. For Games Workshop, this was an obvious and more profitable direction to take. The way forward was clear, and it was no longer involved in role-playing games. At the time, though, it felt pretty sudden. Like the rug had been pulled from under me. What had happened to my beloved white dwarf? Enough of this. <laughs> it is it is ancient history. <clears throat> I'm I'm supposed to be talking about Stormbringer, aren't I? So let's look at the Mad Cat Last by Matt Williams, both Stormbringer's Calling Card and Farewell. White Dwarf, its opening shot, and its last hurrah. Warning, I'll try not to give anything major away, but there may be a few spoilers ahead. I think that's allowed, nearly thirty years after publication, but if you are planning on playing in this adventure, you might want to fast forward a bit. The Madcap Laughs is a three-part adventure, plus a separate introduction, epic in its scale and ambition. What starts out as a simple rescue mission develops into something much more, with the player characters acting as inadvertent pawns in a Mad God Schemes. In a uh, a joke, that's been a a millennia in the planning. These adventures succeed in capturing the flavour of Michael Moorcock's writing. The action visits various locales in the Young Kingdoms, from the barren, weeping waste to the lush jungles of Oyn and Hue. And it features some notable colourful NPCs, giving both players and the gamesmaster good role playing opportunities. In part 3, it even dips a toe in the M- Moorcock multiverse, with the players indulging in a spot of dimension hopping and a travel by airship. It's definitely designed for experienced players. Some of the combat is quite deadly, and it needs at least one person, preferably more, familiar with Stormbringer's magic system. There are a lot of demons to be dealt with. Knowledge of the motivations and machinations of the peoples and religions of the young kingdoms will also come in handy in places. For the gamesmaster, the adventures in parts one and two are come to three in a moment. Are very well structured. Key events are outlined that move the overall plot forward but within a framework that the players will have a great deal of scope to go their own way and explore and discover what's happening. The games master is given good advice on how various ways that the players might tackle the adventures, how to react accordingly. It's a level of detail I think that games masters will really appreciate. The NPCs uh, are very well drawn too. The main character, Zymora, is particularly memorable and features as a real nemesis of the play characters throughout the adventures. I don't think it's a coincidence that she's described and illustrated. Uh, Zimora uh, bears an uncanny resemblance to Sir Valian, the arch-villain from Blake 7. Some of the dialogue the gamesmaster is given to read is a little portentous, but if you've always wanted to release your inner Donald Sinden, then you'll have a lot of fun. The madcap laughs isn't without a few flaws. The motivation and behaviour of some of the NPCs isn't always logical. Why, if the NPC values a powerful, mysterious amulet so highly? does he allow it to be worn by his teenage daughter uh yeah dad i, I did have the uh, key to uh, miracus but then i met up with some friends at the Carlack uh, bazaar we went shopping for a bit and uh, i must have uh, i must have uh, sort of lost it the allegiances formed by some of the npcs didn't always ring true for me either the main issue is that after the relative free-form structure of the first two parts, part three is a bit more on rails. There's a distinct danger that the adventure will happen around the player characters, with them not really influencing the outcome. This is down to the overarching narrative of the adventures itself. The idea of a human drama played out against a bigger cosmic story Involving a jealous god and cursed people is a good one. But the story already seems to be driving the adventure to an inevitable, predetermined conclusion. And up until the main events of Part 3, the play characters will probably not be aware of this bigger picture anyway. As a possibility, when all is revealed, the player's reaction may well be, well, so what? I think maybe a few hints for the players in the early parts as to the higher significance of their actions would be a good idea. A cryptic inscription, perhaps, or a hint dropped by a mischievous demon. By carefully drip-feeding these clues, the gamesmaster could allow a clever player to work out that something big is going on. Who knows, armed with a bit of knowledge the player characters might be able to alter the ultimate outcome, possibly earning themselves a powerful enemy into the bargain. But don't let these minor criticisms put you off. If this podcast has whetted your appetite to play Stormbringer once again, and you're looking for an epic adventure in the Grand Moorcock tradition, the Mad Cat Laughs really fits the bill. Section 4, Judge Blythe rules. Welcome back. And Once again, we're in the court of Judge Blythe, our rules lawyer. And he's sat there with his virtues. Uh, he's an agent of law. Uh, and Now, Blythe, I need you to wear this amulet here. Okay, thank uh, you. And you notice on this amulet, it's got an arrow pointing straight. Yes. And in the presence of chaos... It will begin to heat up. You mustn't lose started it. started to warm a little yeah. already, Dirk. Uh, that'll be because I am wearing an eight-pointed stone. It's <laughs> an agent of chaos. Yeah, I'm an agent of chaos and I'm, I'm going to put this gauntlet on because in this gauntlet, I am bound a demon. And if you watch it, look, it's just waving things through. You know, <laughs> just waving things through
1: because okay. it doesn't really matter. Well, you say that. But as an agent of law, I have to disagree. Okay, let's see if we can
0: uh, get some balance in, in, in <laughs> here as we look at the rules of um, rules of Stormbringer. For scholars out there, we should know that we're actually using the third edition uh, rules um, for this bit, and the
1: first, second, and third edition uh, there wasn't much difference between them. No, they were just reprints, really, weren't they? With different illustrations, so that, I think. I think that one had. Uh, Extra bits in the back, didn't it? Yeah, stuff. uh, But the rules are essentially. This is
0: one that was. uh, It was eventually produced under license for uh, by Games Workshop um, in eighty seven. It's got a good cover on the front, um, which is spoiled by uh, Elric having an arm shooting out the top of his head uh, by uh, Peter Jones, Um, and it's all. I'm hoping by the end of this section it stays in one piece because it's yeah. slowly disintegrating
1: before my eyes. It was actually glued together, so all the pages fall out. Well, my, my first edition copy, um, not that I want to rub it in, is uh, still in very good nick. Yeah. Um, a soft, soft bound copy. You know, yeah. Surprising, isn't it? You you buy the hardback sometimes with these rules, and, and you think that's more durable, and that's strangely, key. it's not. It's k for you, though, right, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good rule, book. the original yeah. rule, book. Okay, so
0: let's have a, an overview of the rules, and uh, we've mentioned previously, haven't we, that it,
1: it as its uh, basis, is uh, room quest. So, a percent another percentile system. Yeah, it's um, basic role playing again um, with a few tweaks. Uh, not as complicated as room It's not as detailed a system as room quest, um, yeah. but it but it's more complicated and, and there's more detail than just basic role playing. There's, there's yeah. a few extra rules. A little bit. Um, It's not like Cthulhu, but in in the same way that Cthulhu takes basic role playing and adds certain specific rules that fit the setting, Stormbringer does similar kind of things, doesn't it? It it adds bits and pieces that make it feel more like it's about Elric and. I think it's. I think it's interesting
0: in the ecology of RuneQuest as well, because if you think. This was actually uh, developed before basic role-playing became the basic role-playing um, template. Yeah. It came out shortly before um, Call of Cthulhu, but it also bridges that uh, period between uh, RuneQuest 2 coming out and RuneQuest 3. And so there are some innovations and elements of uh, Stormbringer that appear in RuneQuest 3, notably the backgrounds. Yes, yeah, you know, that careers yeah. that idea of careers. Yeah. Um, whereas in uh, RuneQuest two, characters start out fairly raw. Um, in Stormbringer, as we will come on to look at, you can actually start at a midpoint. Yeah, and I think
1: at the time that was that was quite an exciting idea because um, there was always this thing, wasn't there, that in in DnD you had character classes and people thought they were a bit daft and a bit restrictive. That's one view. Um, whereas RuneQuest didn't have any character classes. But one of the problems with RuneQuest is everyone felt a bit samey. So if you if you do RuneQuest two as it's meant to be done, as in take it as as red, everyone starts off a bit samey, don't they? Yeah. You know. Um whereas in Stormbringer, you know, you do have you can be a warrior and some of your percentages are bumped up accordingly, you can be a thief. You can be yeah. an assassin, you can be a sailor, you can be this, that or the other. Um, and that's it's kind of a, a nice thing. Again, it doesn't sound particularly... We may say this a lot during this bit of the podcast. Now, now it doesn't seem like such a big deal, does it? No. But at the time, I think it did, because if you have been playing RuneQuest, as we had for a number of years, when you saw that, you thought, all oh, right, yeah, that's a that's an obvious idea it's an obvious solution to this problem of everyone feeling a bit the same yeah yeah you know yeah um the other thing we should
0: say before we get into the um nitty-gritty of the rules and we've mentioned this previously about how it presents the background to the young kingdoms and i think what's good about it is um and i think I think they lose this in later editions so once you get beyond um, third edition into fourth edition and so on and uh, when it becomes out it kind of urges you to take this and run with it, and it just gives you enough. It just gives you enough yeah. uh, flavor of uh, the young kingdoms to do what you need. It's not all. It's not cluttered with lots and lots of background detail. It gives you enough, which is good because at the time um, it wasn't particularly well supported by supplementary material. Um, it stood on its own for a, a, a number of years, so mm-hmm. you had to develop your own stuff, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to uh, ask you the uh, my favourite question, which is uh, what are the critical rules, the three critical rules uh, that you think
1: uh, are in uh, Stormbringer? Okay. Um, well, aside from you know our love of basic role-playing, percentile system and resistance tables and all those things that we've talked about before that are in Runecast and Cthulhu, yeah. so I've set all those aside. As, we'll as put right. them aside, yeah. Put them aside, um, the three the three things I like. What One is the major wounds rule. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's you, to do with combat, yeah. yeah? Um I like the magic system. Yeah. It's an interesting magic system. It's yeah. controversial, but I do think it holds true to the books. Yes. Yeah. And also, um, and this proved very useful when we revisited the game, I, I do like the ambush rule. The ambush rule. The ambush rule. Oh, okay. It's a very interesting and exciting rule. Okay, let's talk about uh, Major Wounds to begin with. So how does this work? Well, you've got um, hit points. Yeah. Um, if you take a wallop of damage getting through armour, so gets through your armour, the damage you take is more than half your hit points. You take what's called a Major Wound and you have to roll on the table to see what that is. So if you've got um, 12 hit points... No, I stand correct. If you've got 12 hit points, you're Storm Ringer, you're dead already. If you've got 16 <laughs> hit points, <laughs> if you've got 16 hit points and someone wallops you with a sword and uh, eight or more damage gets through in one go, uh, that's a major wound. You roll on the table. Um, I think fifty or less, I might be wrong. Fifty yeah, percent yeah. or less. Yeah, yeah. You just get a big you get a scar, an impressive scar, nothing terrible happens. Fifty percent or more, nasty things start. You lose an eye, you lose a hand, you lose an arm, that kind of thing, you lose an ear. All sorts of terrible things happen to you. And I mean it's a it's a I'm probably looking at that rules from a games master's perspective. <laughs> than a player's you perspective. Certainly are, I right? am <laughs> but um but it's a it's a good rule. I liked it at the time because Thing was, in, uh, in RuneQuest you had hit locations, um, but again, it does that thing where it makes for a fast, playable, less complex game, but it still includes hit locations. Yeah, it still has that thing that you've been hit by some damage, you've been hitting the leg. You know, your leg it may not be severed, but your leg's out of action and you're on the floor, and that has consequences. So yeah. it, it straddles the kind of thing between just having a lot of hit points that you lose, and you carry on fighting right to one hit point, and you carry on fighting, which is silly, and hit locations, which can be a bit complicated, a bit fiddly, and a bit messy at times. Yeah. I mean, I like I like the major rules uh, table. I think it's
0: very grug It's very, uh, you know, it feels... Uh, It it feels like it belongs to the heritage of uh, role-playing. But I think what it does as well is... um it deals very well with critical hits. It kind of It's a bit more simple about special attacks, so if you get 5% of your mm, overall yeah, score, yeah. it deals with it um, more things. So it's double do, uh, roll damage twice and ignore armour. It's yeah. as straightforward as that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And uh, the other bit I like is the fact that if you parry a critical hit, it destroys the thing you're parrying with. Yeah. Because... Yeah. I, you know, one of my uh, uh, bug birds with uh, Runequest uh, 2 is that um, any defense or any parry uh, against it can just blast it away, doesn't it? It's not, it's yeah. Not, it's
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you're not you're satisfying, so yeah, like. you've, fa- you've, yeah, you're facing some kind of terrible, difficult, tough opponent, and you, need, you really need a critical to bring them down and you get the critical roll in Runequest two, and then yeah. they parry it. Yeah. Yeah, well, not matter, well, not bothered. Yeah. Whereas in Stormringer, it's it's a bit, bit simply, not simpler, but it's a bit more clear cut, and yeah. that works. But it is very brutal, isn't it? It is. So, do you think that it's the um, combat rules
0: that make it feel very brutal? Because when we played it again, it felt mm.
1: brutal and random. It, yeah, it it does. But I think what it does, and I'll, I'll come on to this one. Talk about the ambush rule. What I yeah. think it does. It makes you think more tactically as a warrior or a thief or an assassin. It makes you think about fighting. It doesn't. It's not the kind of game where you can shy away from a fight because it's sword and sorcery. So there's, yeah. you know, there's, there is fighting in it. But it makes you think more about it. One of the challenges is staying alive and making sure you use tactics. Uh, and you know you. You can't really afford. I mean, you can't. You can't be to hit by a by sword. You know, you've got armor. You, you, you know, you, you've got hit punch. So you know, it's not sudden death, is it? But you, you think more about it. I think you think more about combat, and you yeah. think this is quite dangerous. And therefore, you know. I mean, RuneQuest combat's dangerous, but I, I would. Would it be fair to say Stormbringer combat's more dangerous? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, the armour, the uh, and I'm, I've not mentioned this, but the armour rules in Stormbringer are very interesting in that you roll a dice. I mean, there's demon armour, which we'll come on to when we talk about magic, but general armour, you roll a dice, don't you? So if you've got plate armour on yeah, without a helmet, I think it's 1d10 minus uh, 1. Barbarian armour is 1d8 minus 1, and I think leather's 1d6 minus 1. So, if you're hit by something, rather than the armor just simply absorbing the damage, yeah. you roll a dice. So, if you're hit by a sword, say there's d8 damage, you roll a 7, you've got leather armor on, you roll 1d6 minus 1, you roll a 3, minus 1, 2. So, it soaks up 2 damage. It doesn't soak up a fixed amount. In RuneQuest, yeah. you know, you're wearing armor. You're wearing plate in RuneQuest, yeah. soaks up 6 damage. You know, every time you hit, it's going to soak up 6 damage. So, a Trollkin with a short sword. Um, is going to struggle to get through plate armor. Something with a short sword in Stormbringer, if you're wearing plate, you roll a one, it yeah. doesn't soak up anything. Yeah, yeah. So even, even armor can be a little bit unreliable in Stormbringer. Yeah. So you never feel totally protected. It's, it, it, it's, it's the kind of game that, you know, you, you can't wander into a fight unless you're a sorcerer. You can't wander into a fight and think, I'll be all right. I'll be all right against this guy. he's only got a little sword. he's only quite puny. I've got plate armor on. You can't really guarantee that if you turn it on the other
0: side as well, so uh, I've games mastered this recently and um I think beforehand you know there was like five five six year playing. I had no idea how it was going to play yeah. because all these little elements uh, make it random. So when you're in the uh, the thrill of a fight, anything could happen, anything could
1: happen. Yeah, could yeah. Happen. yeah. It, it does have an unpredictability, a dangerous unpredictability to it, which a lot of role-playing games don't have because a lot of role-playing games, you can look at certain scenarios and situations, combat and think, Ooh, I'll be okay, I think I'll be reasonably okay. Uh, yeah. or you can think who now well, I won't be okay with Stormringer you're yeah, never quite sure and it it makes it exciting but mm. it also makes it brutal and it comes back to that point
0: that this is a game that is suited to the one shot you know yes where, it is you know Yeah. one session yeah you know go for it yeah Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Have, have fun but don't be too attached to your character you know so the second uh, the second rule you like is the magic, the magic system Um, I mean, there's nothing intrinsically sort of particularly interesting about it as a set of rules, but I think it's more of a concept, isn't it, in that the magic system in Stormringer isn't a magic system that revolves around spells, um, and wizards having spells. It's all about summoning demons and elementals, isn't it? Yeah. Which, again, is true to the books, because in the books it's all about summoning the gods and demons and elementals and
0: what I, what I like about it is this idea that um, you have to instruct them. So yes. you know yes. you have to think very carefully about yes. uh, instructing yeah. them, yeah. Um, because you know yeah. it's the old uh, sausage on the end of your nose thing, isn't it? You know that. Hans no, Christian I Hans- do tell. <laughs> it's Hans Christian <laughs> Andersen. Oh Did he wanted the end of your nose? a sausage? He wanted a sausage. Yeah. And his wife said he could have any wish. Yeah. He asked for a sausage. His wife said. Why did he ask for a sausage? You could have asked for anything. I wish it would be on the end of your nose. And so he had a sausage on the end of his nose. Is that true? Is that? I
1: know, it's it's, not,
0: not, it's true. not true. It's not true. Is that true? A is that, is that, is that
1: I've never, of... I've, never
0: been, I've never been in that kind of situation in Stormbringer. No. But it has
1: that potential, doesn't it? I think, I think if you were a role player and you were a Melnibonian sorcerer and you summoned a demon and wished for a sausage, <laughs> you deserved to die. What would you like? Would you like um a soul drinking black sword of death or a sausage? I'll go for a sausage. No, I think I think you deserve to die. File your character sheet <laughs> <laughs> you get what I mean, though, don't you? You get what I mean. I do get what you mean. mean yeah. You yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's a bit like for those familiar with D anD, d it's like the wish spell in D anD, d isn't it? Yeah. The classic wish spell, where I think in players' Handbook it sort of warns you that you know be very precise about what you use the wish spell for, because the cruel games master can trick you, yeah, and you end up with sausage on the end of your nose, yeah, 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 or something similar to that, yeah, yeah. But I, th- I, I think you're right. I think it.
0: It's not really a real thing because a lot of the um, spell casting and summoning happens off stage, doesn't it? Yes, so yes. You, you bind the demons
1: into your armor yeah. to increase the strength, of that. Yeah, that into that... weapons to increase the power. So you bind them into things, don't you? And they, yeah. they make your armor more powerful and your weapon more powerful. And th- this is one of the, 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 I suppose, the two criticisms of Stormringer, which we need to address with the magic system. Some people criticise it because they don't like the idea that there are no spells. So being a sorcerer, you can't yeah. just fireball someone or you know, cast a sleep spell or turn into a bird. But I think the answer to that one is, well, tough, go and play a different game because Stormbringer and Elric and Moorcock and the Young King, that's, that's the way it is. So yeah. you know, that's, that's what it is. I think the other criticism, which is, has a little bit more validity, is that sorcerers in, in Stormbringer... Can become incredibly powerful, so you can end up with de- a demon bound into your armor, um, and it can protect you at eighty points protection, yeah. count it. And, yeah, yeah. And the only thing that can damage it is another demon weapon. So if you if you're up against a sorcerer with demon armor, which has eighty protection, and all you've got is your average broadsword, unless you get a critical, um, which ignores armor. There's not a lot you can do about it, and so sorcerers can become very, very powerful. Um, in some ways, that's why it lends itself to a one-on-one game because if you're playing a sorcerer, yeah,
0: you know that's kind of yeah. all right. Yeah, um,
1: but I suppose it can be tricky if there's a sorcerer and then there's a lot of average players around who are not sorcerers. Although yeah. they they can have demon weapons and armor given to them, or they can find it. So yeah. there's nothing to stop that happening. But there is that imbalance in there of sorcerers very powerful yeah um other characters far less powerful
0: in later editions so from the fourth edition uh, onwards they do introduce the idea of having um spell descriptions but somehow I think it loses something when mm. they do that yeah I think in these early editions um the use of plants and poisons kind of yes makes, there is it makes, that, yeah the plant I, lore. And- because uh, I don't think it's fitting with the Young Kingdoms. In the Young Kingdoms, um, people are not intrinsically magical. Um, this ancient race of Malnebonians mm. uh, uh, have, kind of, have got this kind of relationship with demons. And similarly, uh, Pantangians,
1: who are a younger I mean, human um, uh, race, are kind of dabbling with it and yeah, being distorted yeah. by it, aren't they? And it's hard to become a sorcerer. I mean, as a human, you, yeah. you can become a sorcerer. But it's very, very difficult because you need a very high intelligence and a very high power score. Um and the the races, you know, races like the Melnibonians have, have modifications to their stats that give them a better chance of becoming a sorcerer. So not even not even all Melnibonians and Pantangians can be sorcerers. Yeah, so yeah. they are quite rare in the sense that it's it's hard to become one of those people, but it's it's also hard to get the stats you need to become a sorcerer. So you can be a Melibonian. But you're still not a sorcerer because you've no. not got quite good enough stats yeah, to do it. So it is yeah. rare. Um, but I think with the game balance thing, um, it's something we, I think we'll talk about later when we talk about character creation and races. Because I think there's an interesting, whilst people might criticise that game balance, I think Stormwing is trying to do something else. Yes, yeah. Uh, maybe unconsciously, but we can talk about that later.
0: Yeah, and I think we should come back to uh, magic uh, when we look at some of the supplements because mm. um, some of the supplements uh, try and address this uh, idea of magic and how, yeah. to, how to deal with it, so yeah. we'll, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about Ambush because uh, you were very
1: excited about this ahead of our <laughs> I, uh, I, recent game. I do like the Ambush rule because I think, I think a lot of role-playing games um, fall down a little bit when it comes to things like surprise and ambushing opponents and
0: that kind of thing. Well, it's like the uh, strike rank thing, isn't it? So, the, I like strike rank because it takes into account uh, dexterity and size, but it doesn't deal with the randomness
1: of things happening mm. and uh, yeah. the unexpected. Yeah, so it's a little bit, you know, you, you, your classic kind of dungeon guard room where you kick the door in and there are the guards playing cards or something. You know they're yeah. not prepared you get them by surprise and in a lot of games you sort of get one round you know attack yeah. on them and that kind of thing and it always you know, feels a little bit unsatisfactory whereas in real life if you took someone by surprise and you had a big sword, you would have an immense advantage over them yeah um, and the ambush rule in stormbringer is a skill which allows you to roll the skill and if you're successful, you get one d four minus one rounds of combat against an opponent. Um, they can't parry, they can't attack. So I, you could get up to three rounds of combat, and they can't do anything about it. Going back to the sorcerer with the eighty points armor, that's some uh, an opportunity to ambush the sorcerer and get some hits in him, and hopefully get a critical and get through the armor. That kind of thing. Which so is what happened. Which is what happened in our game. You know, we ambush. But also, what's good about it is it doesn't just allow you to roll the skill. It says that you've got to negotiate with the games master yes. how you're going to ambush them. Yeah, yeah. And again, that that was an interesting. Again, doesn't seem interesting now, but then I think it was an interesting concept because RuneQuest and basic role playing generally have this idea. You have a percentage roll for a skill. So I'm going to search the room. I roll. Do I find anything? I'm going to climb the wall. I roll. Do I find anything? I'm Going to try and persuade this guy. I roll. Do I persuade him? That kind of thing. Um, But Ambush encourages you to negotiate and come up with a plan that the game's master says, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds like a good idea, I'm going to let you roll your Ambush skill. And that seemed like a kind of quite progressive and interesting development in the game. And i knew
0: glad that I were the gauntlet of waving things through in that instance then, that I
1: allow that level of negotiation? Well, I suppose so, but then I think... We did a pretty good job of negotiating it, you know, yeah, right. using the rules of law and logic and reason. Let's talk about uh, character <laughs>
0: creation because uh, we're on the brink. We're on the uh, this evening. We're going to play New for the first time. Yes, and I've created a New character, and I have to say that creating the New character was one of the most enjoyable character creation experiences I've had because. It gives you a set of choices that you can uh, make uh, to develop and create what you want it to be yes. yeah. within the setting. Yeah, Stormbringer is the complete opposite of that. <laughs> it's a bit, isn't it? Yeah. because yeah. you have to play the hand you dealt, mm. and that is no more so than uh, with the, uh, the the racial uh, thing. So, essentially, Young Kingdoms is a human. A, a human culture, isn't it? Manduborians are ancient, so kind of alien-like, mm. um, but essentially it's it's human. So you have basic characteristics, but these can be adjusted depending on your race. Yes, yeah. You've never managed to roll a Manduborian, have you? I haven't. No, no. Elric,
1: uh, Elric, Eddie, easily confused. <laughs> <laughs> Both pale and interesting.
0: Pale and interesting, Eddie.
1: Uh, he managed to uh <laughs> he
0: on roll the Mount so So yeah. you've got the cursed ice cup.
1: Oh not the cursed ice cup. No, cup do. Don't you want to roll? Cup of chaos. Let's no. roll. Let's see if you can do it. Ten. Ten. It's quite good. That that it's
0: quite good. Um Darrijo. Yes. yeah. So sorry about not close but no cigar.
1: No. Close okay. but no stone no storm ringer or <laughs> moon blade even. Yeah. But it's a, it is interesting, isn't it? it? Because you say you roll a D hundred and you get you get a race. I mean, that's the way you you know you don't have to do that, I suppose. If you were doing a one on one game or a one shot, you could say, oh, you're gonna be a Mel you're gonna be this, you're gonna be that. Fair enough. But the idea behind it is you roll you, you do, you roll your race and there are such extremes on it. I mean the the classic extreme is: yes, you can be a Melniboni or a Pantangian and end up being a sorcerer, or you could be from the city of beggars, yes, which means you're fairly puny and you will have probably a limb missing. So you could end up <laughs> an eye missing, or yeah. you end up being a carriage on a crutch, um, whereas one of the other players could be a sorcerer.
0: And I think you know
1: we we, we say that our um, our.
0: Former colleague, a former uh, member of the, of the group, he didn't like um, Stormbringer because he was a, such a talking fan. But I think it was because he was the beggar and I was the uh, more powerful character. He's and a I bit think... of a power
1: game, also. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but I think what's what's interesting about the character creation in Stormbringer is, and I'm not sure if this is. It's a difficult one, this, because, I mean, it was first published in 1981, wasn't it? Yeah. So this, this is a rule system from, you know, 1980, 1981. Um, and nowadays you have these kind of story-based games, don't you? So role-playing these days, it's like an old man now, these days, yeah. young role-players these days. Get off my lawn. And, yeah. They, <laughs> they, um, there's much more emphasis on story and characters, um, you know. So it's not the old, you know, Gary Gagat saying that D&D is a war game. You know, that yeah. was his kind of. I think he famously once said that d is like a war game. So you're in a dungeon, and you all have your abilities, and you wander around, you kill monsters, and you get experience points. And it's like a war game, but it's personalised war games yeah. rather than armies. But what um, modern games are more about stories, and I think Stormbringer is going in that direction, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know. But what it forces you to do is consider, you know, there's four people playing this game. One of them's very powerful. Two of them, um, you know, one of them's kind of ordinary. One of them's from, is it, ah, I don't know, Lomia, Lomia, is it? it yeah, or yeah. a bit dim, and they get an actual reduction on their intelligence. Yes. You know, uh, so one of them's a bit dim, and one of a beggar with one leg. Now, go and play that game. But I think what it's trying to do is, is the story, isn't it? You know, yeah, so yeah. you can be. You could have a Melnibornian sorcerer with a beggar sidekick. And if you're the beggar sidekick, what it what it seems to be suggesting, and it doesn't say so overtly, but what it's nudging in the direction of is play the role, yeah. play, do the story, you know. Just because you're, you know, the one-legged beggar um doesn't mean you're any less important than the sorcerer. Yeah. It's not about power and wealth and going up the levels and all that kind of thing. It's about the story, you know. And I think that's why. I liked it so much. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I remember
0: games where I was playing those um, low power characters and I remember one where we broke into the manse of a a sorcerer and I remember negotiating with a, a demon who was bound into a statue mm-hmm. and we just spent an, an evening just having this dialogue.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: But you, you can do that.
1: There are. There's, like I said, there's the demon, the, the negotiating with the demons and the kind of character you may be given, the hand you may be dealt... Um, Pushes you in the direction of more role playing rather than becoming a powerful rune lord or becoming a powerful magic user or becoming this or that, and that's what I think is really interesting. And I'd say I think quite revolutionary about it. Yeah. Again, I don't think it's overt, but it, it's definitely there. You know, this you forget it's nineteen eighty one. Yeah, yeah. You know when this
0: is being and maybe uh, this is where role playing creates role playing. <laughs> yeah,
1: I wanted to be like that yeah. what about the uh, rule fumble what doesn't work the only rule I have a real problem with um, I think is some of the skills the base scores for skills um, because what you get on each skill area, so you've got perception knowledge uh, agility, those kind of areas you get a bonus depending on how dexterous clever, strong you are whatever Um, plus and minus percent so you might get a bonus of plus four percent but some of the skills are just a bonus so things like tie knots is if you've got a four percent bonus tie knots is four percent now i mean i wasn't in the boy scouts but i can tie a knot i don't (laughs) think it's four percent you know and if you get a bad if you get a character not that good you could get no bonus or even a negative bonus so it's not like i can't tie knots it's that. You know what? What does it mean? I mean yeah, you, yeah. It's that I won't tie knots. I refuse to. <laughs> or every time you go past a knot, it unravels. It unravels. <laughs> yeah, you have to walk within ten <laughs> paces of a knot, and it unravels. Yeah. yeah. Don't let them on a ship. All the sails <laughs> will fall down. But I think it's some. It's a little bit silly because some of the skills are sort of ten percent plus your bonus, which even that feels a bit low. You know, move silently or something. It could be ten percent plus again if your bonus is two percent. Twelve percent seems seem a bit low. The skills, I think, and it's a bit silly because no one's that bad, you know. And I suppose it highlights a bit of a flaw um, in that basic role playing idea of, you know, spot hidden item. You know, five percent. It's not like you know some kind of idiot who can't search a room at all. Um, and it forces the games master to keep either adding, either do it like that and say it's 5%, you just keep failing all the time, or you're adding, giving them bonuses and saying, oh, it's quite easy, so I'll give you plus 30%, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the skill bases do do kind of niggle a bit, I think, yeah. with me. They, see, they seem just ridiculously low. If you play it as written, I think it's one of those things that you just end up bumping them up, don't you? I mean, yes. I you, yeah, I you end up bumping them up and saying, oh, well, let's give yourself a base of. Twenty percent for everything, plus your bonus, yeah. and and you know, and, and admittedly, the, the careers and the backgrounds do bump the skills up. So, admittedly, if you are an, an assassin, you'll get something like forty percent plus your bonus. And move silently, so it, not everyone starts at ridiculously low levels, but it's just the the skills that fall out of your chosen profession, um, are stupidly low it seems to me. Yeah, you know, I can never quite get on with that let's get out it it is glowing quite a bit isn't it you're amulet it is yeah Yeah, the forces of chaos (laughs) are (laughs) strong till next time goodbye bye
0: section 5 there is no section 5 thanks for listening to this first part of this dawnbringer episode subscribe to make sure that you get the second part dropping in your pod box when it becomes available I want to give a special thanks to at Daily Dwarf for his magnificent contribution to this episode. There's more from him soon. The second part of this episode will feature details about the supplements and supporting material that's available for Stormbringer. We'll also be having a show and tell of some of the interesting items from our own personal Moorcock collections. Also part two is over to you. Please contact us by email dirtthedice at gmail.com or keep in touch daily on Twitter at the grognard file or bung us a five star review on iTunes. You can also comment on the site the where I'll be publishing the full transcript of the Twitter conversation that we had with Ken Santandra. I did promise not to bang on about the Patreon campaign, so I'll leave it to you to find the link in the show notes and perhaps tip us some coins in the beret. But I wanted to give a special thanks to our founder sponsors Rick Not, Eric Top and Tunie. I want to give extra special thanks to the People who've actually given the um, premium maximum backer of uh, five dollars a month and um, so I've given them special demon um, features from a table in that uh, Stormbringer so I'm just gonna roll on a dice so Steve Rees thanks for your um, backing and you've got a three so you have the power of strength drain uh, also thanks to Andrew uh, so i'm going to give uh, give it a roll you get four so you've got the power to regenerate thank you matt broughton you've got a seven so you're invulnerable so have fun walking in front of buses Uh sam vale i'm going to roll this because i know he loves the rattle of uh, dice around his head uh and oh you've got and that's uh, that's acid so have fun with that. So they're all now bound into our service and let's hope they don't eat me or drive me insane before the next part. Until then, I'm dirtthedice at gmail.com. Adios amigos.